0: Today's guest on the Good First podcast is Charles Kahn. Charles is a super interesting fellow. He has been involved in some amazing companies and investments in his career. We talk a lot about purpose. And when I say purpose, I mean the one with a capital P. Uh, He's chair at Patagonia. That's a great example. But he makes it relevant for all of us. And the importance of it is obvious. We also talk a lot about problem solving and strategy as it relates to startups. He shares a lot in a couple of books he's written on this. That's coming up right now on the Give First podcast. Don't miss it. Hi, everyone. This is David Cohen, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Brad Feld. Hey Brad, and this is the Give First podcast. In the startup world, Give First means simply trying to help anyone, especially entrepreneurs, without any expectation of getting anything back. So we'll be talking to mentors and founders about what Give First looks like in action and how it makes great entrepreneurship possible. We polled everyone and they said consistently that their favorite part of the show was the legal mumbo jumbo. So here it is. The following discussion is an expression of personal opinion and does not represent the opinion of TechStars or any company we discuss. Our conversations for informational purposes only, including any mention of securities or funds. This is not legal, business investment or tax advice and is not intended for use by any investor. Certain of TechStars funds own or may own in the future securities in some of the companies discussed in this podcast. Got it? Today on the Gift First podcast, really excited to have Charles Kahn joining. Charles has a very a long and interesting career. He's been involved with lots of things, started off as a consultant at, at BCG and McKinsey, has been an entrepreneur in, in various contexts. He's the founding CEO of Ticketmaster City Search. He's been the chair at a little company called Patagonia uh, over the last 15 years, an author and a life sciences investor. Charles, welcome to the Gift First podcast.
1: David, thanks for having me. It's really great to be here.
0: So there are so many things that you're involved with. I didn't even mention the Nature Conservancy. I didn't mention Oxford. We got to pick something. I think people listening will be really interested in Patagonia. You've been chair there for 15 years, obviously a super interesting journey. Talk a little bit about that company and sort of your role as chair and some of the things that, that you've learned over your 15 years there.
1: Sure. Well, I've been on the board for 15 years. I've only been chair for a few years. Patagonia is. What do they say in Latin? Sui generis. In and of itself, there's really no other company quite like it. And I've learned so much working with Yvonne Chenard, who's the founder and his family and uh, current CEO Ryan Geller. Um, it's the only company I've ever been involved in which is like, genuinely driven by purpose. It isn't sort of purpose as window dressing for making money. It's actually just purpose. And really interesting to see a company that's now in its 50th year actually continue to live the mission. For me it feels like it's I don't know if this will make sense, but the joining of vocation and avocation in a seamless way, which is really unusual in work in my in my experience.
0: I think a lot of people listening might be familiar with the Purpose Trust and the sort of more recent. But as you said, this has been something the company has has lived since the beginning. It's a B Corp. It's a public benefit corp. Techstars, by the way, is also a B Corp. And so try to live that that purpose as much as, you know, the for profit nature of our business. But talk about that period of time where the Purpose Trust actually happened because it was quite a story that I think people are familiar with.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. It took a long time to sort of get it right. which sounds funny because when you look at it, you think, well, it's obvious, right? But Yvonne said to a group of us, including Chris Tompkins, who I serve on the board with, you know, hey, I'm in getting to be my mid-80s. We're in our 50th, heading toward our 50th year. We really need to think about where do we go from here? So I think there were couple things that were really important to him. One is, how do you provide stewardship for the next 50 years of a company without the founder being around? And how do you provide, how do you double down on purpose and mission? In the past, we had a mission, which is to build the best products, do the least harm, and use uh, the power of capitalism to fight the environmental crisis. Four years ago, Yvonne said, no, we're in business to save the home planet. And then With this purpose-trust shift, where you know the family gave the company to the earth, he doubled down on what that mission is. And it's sort of really interesting to stop and think about that. What does it really mean to be in business to save the home planet? The ultimate experience of that was to transfer all the shares to a trust who uses the money to fight climate change and species eradication. That was an amazing journey and one that was also quite challenging.
0: I bet. I mean, it's the ultimate expression of the purpose of the company. And it's, it's such an interesting thing to write about and to see someone actually do. It's not a very common thing where you see someone actually do it. But again, lots of companies have good aspects built into their purpose. But it's clear that it's really at Patagonia all about that, at least for the future.
1: And I think, you know, why was it hard? You know, well, it's hard because you could give more money away by going public with dual class shares. That would have fulfilled one of those objectives, giving more money to fight the environmental crisis, but would have done a less good job with providing stewardship. It turns out giving the company to a foundation is actually a hard thing to do in the United States. Companies can't be owned by foundations. It's harder than people think to piece these things together so that you still have an effective, competitive company and its purpose is wed the way we just described. Awesome. It is hard
0: and... Techstars, as you know, we made many investments over the years, and one of the investments is in a company called Common Trust that's trying to make this easier for people to do. It's actually founded by one of our former managing directors and investors. There have been two really notable intersections with entrepreneurs and the venture community, at least two, uh, that I can think of at Patagonia. One is obviously creating the uniform for venture capitalists. I mean, the vest is obviously was a huge innovation for venture venture capital attire. What did they do before? I don't know. I have no idea what, what we did before. But the other is is also the venture fund that was launched in in 2013. I, I think. Um, can you talk a little bit about the sort of thought behind that and and where that is today.
1: Yeah. So I mean, you know, day to day, obviously, Patagonia makes things like the vest that you described. But when your aspiration is to make the best goods to do no unnecessary harm and to use the power of this creative thing called capitalism to do good in the world, you really are called to do more than just making the best. And the whole idea behind Tid Shed Ventures was, how could we also be part of the innovation economy? How could we be investing in future technologies for making the fabrics and fibers for clothing and gear? And how could we be part of new ways of thinking about how to make garments at all. So it pushes us outside the comfort zone, designing clothing and making clothing to be more actively engaged in that creative economy. And it gave us much more exposure to working with incredibly exciting young companies that weren't quite ready to be suppliers yet. So I'd say it's been a really important experiment inside the company in being closer to the face of innovation even before those innovations can be integrated into our day jobs.
0: Yeah, it's only a 10-year-old thing and so I imagine some of the companies you've been involved with and, and technologies are still developing, but is it still actively investing through that vehicle uh, today?
1: Totally. I mean, there's a wonderful team that works on that and Great. You know, just like every venture firm, not everything works and you have to let go and this is, you know, again part of the themes of the book that I recently came out with. It's okay when things don't work. And inside companies, unlike venture firms, we often get really attached to everything working and we punish people whose experiments don't work. And of course, that's absurd. So I think having a venture firm inside a company is a really good way of reminding folks, we make bets, those bets are probabilistic, and of course some of them aren't going to work. The Tinshed Ventures folks also invest in new environmental technologies. Right? And a lot of those are a big stretch. I think it's good for the culture.
0: Yeah, it's been really fun. We work with the Nature Conservancy, which you're involved with also. And it was really interesting for them to make a bunch of really early stage you know, investments uh, with us. I think we did 30 or 40 investments together. But yeah, they're not all going to work. And I want to get to the book, The Imperfectionists, uh, that, you, that you mentioned, and we'll weave it in here. But in order to make sure people really understand you, your, your more day-to-day thing is Monograph Capital, I believe. So uh, obviously, everything's going right in that particular investment business. So maybe talk a little bit about that one.
1: Well, god, you know, biotech is the hardest thing in the world. Isn't it? I mean, I do have a day job. I work with some amazing partners and colleagues in making investments in the. Biotech space. Some of that's in new medications and therapies, and some of it's in the technologies that help drug discovery work better, sometimes called health tech or tech bio. Why do I do that? I mean, it seems like if you're if you're fundamentally a a builder creator and you're an environmentalist, the most consistent thing you can do is work in this biology space. Because when humans have health security, they tend to look after the planet. I can wed together my love of building and tech with something that I think is consistent with working on the planet. And I think biotech does that.
0: Are there there one or two investments maybe you could talk a little bit about?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we're working, and this isn't my investment, it's one of my colleagues' investments, but we're working on a gene therapy that is working on a cure for frontal temporal dementia. So imagine by changing gene expression, you could actually end a kind of dementia happens to be the kind of dementia that Bruce Willis has, and actually create a cure for something that has never had a cure before. And it's pretty heady stuff to be involved in, frankly. We also look at computational drug discovery, which means instead of just working, you know, in biochemistry at the lab bench, imagine you could use the power of artificial intelligence and our increasing knowledge about the building blocks of biology to accelerate the ability to find new compounds that cure disease. It feels like for the first time you know, in, I don't know, history, where with gene and cell therapies you can fix things as opposed to just treating things.
0: Isn't that crazy? It, it does feel like we are in the period of innovation, particularly with healthcare. Just understanding how we actually work right, and being able to do things about it on the dimensions of aging or disease is pretty incredible stuff.
1: And it's humbling, too, right? Because, you know, there's some things that we really are only at the beginning of understanding, like how our brains work. And so when we have disorders that are located in the brain, our ability to cure those or fix those is really limited still.
0: So you've learned a lot in these various journeys you've been on, and you've started to write about it. You've you've written a couple of books, at least, that I know about. The follow-up to Bulletproof Problem Solving that you wrote a while back is out as of April. It's The Imperfectionist, Strategic Mindsets for Uncertain Times. Talk a bit about why you wrote these books and and really some of the core messages
1: that are in them. So as you sort of charitably pointed out, I can't seem to hold a job. (laughs) So I've done a bunch of different things over time. And the one thread that's sort of red lines through all that stuff is problem solving. I didn't invest only in a particular kind of domain knowledge or or much domain knowledge at all. What I like is the idea of working with other creative people to solve difficult problems. And that may be one of those domains where humans really do have an advantage over artificial intelligence and other approaches as best we understand them today. To creatively solve problems is maybe at the very heart of what it is to be a human. And that's why I've been writing about those topics.
0: With the most recent book, *The Imperfectionists*, I know you, you have a framework there that basically you say, you know, most company planning processes are are just fantasies today, right? There's, they don't really have a good approach. It's it's hope, it's try, but it's it's not structured. And so, you've come up with kind of a different way to, to think about strategy and and some mindsets. So, talk a bit about those and maybe what some of the people listening could take away from that.
1: So, I mean, let me contrast it with the old way of thinking. Those of us who sort of went to business school were taught a particular way of thinking about strategy, which is you look at an industry, you try and understand its structural characteristics. You then use those structural characteristics to understand the likely behavior of the players inside that industry. And that helps you figure out a strategy either to enter that industry or to defend from within that industry. Call it structure behavior approach, structure conduct approach to strategy, and I think that works really well. You know, you know, Michael Porter's famous for writing a book about it, which, you know, we all studied. I think it's a very powerful idea, but it works particularly well when industries have boundaries and where they have players that you can identify and when things are not changing so quickly that it seems like the rules or bases of competition change day to day. When all that's true, when there's programmable biology, artificial intelligence, when your competitor is just as likely to be a new entrant, From some completely left field, not in your industry space, the rules for competition and developing strategy need to change. The rise of super competitors like Amazon and Apple and Microsoft underscore that even more. Amazon is now the biggest player in cloud computing services. It's also a huge player in consumer finance. It's fixing to be a huge player in consumer healthcare. So if you're in any of those businesses, watch out. What we've said is, Not that you don't think about structured conduct, but that you need to be much more nimble. And the idea of doing an annual strategic plan is kind of a joke. Curiosity needs to be the founding point of strategy. And dynamic problem solving needs to be the key framework or mental model for developing strategy. And there's a few themes around that 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 are in the book.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about maybe a few of those themes at a high level. I think when you talk to a lot of startups, they conflate strategy with sort of what they're doing. Our strategy is just go be the best in X. So for me, I've always tried to have a litmus test. Like, am I talking to someone that actually has a strategy? (laughs) And it's it's actually more rare than you would think, especially at the early stage. So what are some of those themes? What are some of those things that, particularly for startups or early stage companies that you think are, are maybe some of the most relevant ones?
1: So let me, I'll just say two or three that I think are really important. And that is before we rush off and develop what we would call a strategy, that we really look at the problem from multiple perspectives. And I think, especially in startup companies, people often just see things through the lens of whatever their, again, their product is. And they seldom step back for a second and say, what would this look like from the perspective of a supplier? Or what would this look like from the perspective of a potential entrant? Or what does it really look like from the perspective of a customer? We call that dragonfly eye because dragonflies have you know, 30,000 facets in their eyes, and we love the idea of seeing things through different lenses, zooming in and zooming out. We think the critical thing when you're about to start strategy is to make sure that you see things through others' perspectives. Sometimes folks call that perspective taking. Can I give you one example, and then we can pick a different thing? Be great. Cool. Well, an example I really love is Invisalign. Invisalign... Is a a company that makes clear dental braces that have completely revolutionized how orthodonture works. Did that come out of folks who worked in orthodonty? Nope. Came out of two kids who were at business school, one of whom was wearing braces in business school. (laughs) Like, oh, how terrible, right? What they did, these two people, Kelsey Worth and uh, Zia Christie, did, was they took the perspective of the patient or the the user of braces and said, how could we rethink this so that you could actually move your teeth, but also feel like, you know, you were looking good while doing it. And they did it by noticing some little insights about how Zia's retainer actually moved his teeth when he hadn't put it in for a couple of days. And they work with some really clever engineers to develop sets of progressive, essentially retainers that move people's teeth. And they created a $20 billion company and they completely changed how people think about orthodontics. But that's not what's important. What's important is they came at the strategy for moving our teeth, which was the desired outcome, from a completely different perspective from anybody else. And we think in t- when times are changing, when technologies are changing, when consumer needs are changing, it's really important that you look through those other lenses before you develop a strategy. Orthodonty hadn't changed in seventy years.
0: But I th- don't you think most people would say, "Of course, we we talk to the customer, and of course we listen to them. You know, and they have their own idea. They think they know the solution to the problem." One of the first things we always say when somebody starts a TechStars Accelerator program is, "We didn't invest in your solution. We invested in you, and we like the problem you're interested in." Yeah, right. Beyond just talking to the customer, which most people would say we do, what's left to do?
1: Well, so much more. The example I gave you happened to be a customer lens, which was sort of the curb appeal of uh of braces versus what they came up with. But I think there's equally powerful transformations that come from seeing things from the perspective of a supplier, of thinking about supply chain, or thinking about a prospective entrant and looking where weaknesses are, or seeing things through, you know, a technologist's perspective. Each one of those things gives a different lens. And when we think about kind of breakthrough thinking, like, let's look at cloud computing. How did cloud computing come into being? Did Amazon say, golly, we need a new line of work. This retail thing isn't so high margin. (laughs) No. (laughs) They developed a set of tools, first for themselves and then for their bigger customers. And then I think it was Andy Jassy, who now runs the thing, actually woke up one day and said, I wonder if we could actually package this as a set of tools for people out there in the economy. So was Amazon a computer company? No. But why didn't cloud computing come from IBM or Oracle or Microsoft? Didn't, right? And it it came from them because they literally saw that through a different set of lenses and realized there was something. I think each lens gives you a different perspective.
0: Yeah, and so I think one of the keys, it sounds like, is is making sure with the dragonfly analogy, you, you have as many different sort of points of view and perspectives as you can and maybe it's not going to come from that customer perspective maybe it's going to come from a completely different angle than that breakthrough and of course you know another another classic example would be uh blockbuster didn't exactly come up with streaming right they they certainly are in a position to and the whole netflix story i think is so interesting about how they just they were doing something totally different but it's timing and it's just paying attention to what people want and what's possible
1: well i love that one i'm glad you picked it like you know let's take another one like Go talk to the customer back in 1975. Ask him if they want a Walkman. Right. You know, they would say, what are you talking about? I don't need that. I, got, I already got a boombox. I don't need a Walkman. Sometimes just talking to the customer when the customer can't visualize where you're going doesn't work. And you know, Blockbuster blew it. Right. And Netflix figured out something. I think by doing more than listening to the customer, they were ahead. You know, what did Wayne Gretzky always say? They'll go where the puck is better where the puck's going to be, right? (laughs) But figuring out where the puck's going to be is hard.
0: Yeah, and that's really the game that startups all are trying to play. But often what I see is building a product that they love or that they think or they know is needed, right? It's because they live the problem a little bit in one context, right? Or they just perceive their, you know, it sucks to be a customer in this particular industry, so I'm going to go unsuck this industry. That's literally how they think about it and so i'm going to build some software and i'm going to iterate and get feedback that's the product and it's different than the strategy which is being successful with the product and the company
1: right and of course you know we, when we tell success stories we're dealing with massive survivor bias right because and you know you've seen this in your business over many years like just saying i need to unsuck this isn't enough to make a great company there's 5000 great starting points that end badly for every one really transformational idea that we tell stories about. But there are ways of getting a higher probability of success on sucking stuff. And I think perspective taking, we call Dragonfly Eye is one of them. I think experimentalism, which is sort of obvious and we talk about it a lot, but I I think very deeply fundamental experimentalism, we call it occurrent behavior, is another one of them. And I think being willing to crowdsource in a very deep and fundamental way is a is third one. All really relevant. I mean, I, I think about so many
0: companies we've invested in that they get to a certain point and then they just get locked in, right? It's effectively a one-trick pony and they really have no way of innovating, way of experimenting. You talked about that with the Patagonia stuff quite a bit. That was obviously really important. And I, I love the, the history webpage on the, on the Patagonia site. is so cool to go through. Well, but yeah, you see that a lot where they're just, they don't have experimentation built into the culture or the DNA of the business.
1: And boards reinforce that, right? I And mean, what, what do you say as a board member? Focus, focus, focus. Sure, focus on the wrong thing. You know, and that's the problem is that a lot of times when we're on the journey of unsucking something or figuring something out, we actually we fall in love. This is, you know, literally the most fundamental human bias in the world. We fall in love with our first cut at what the answer is. And then we focus in on that. And it isn't the right answer. What Yvonne Chenard says is get your first idea, mock it up, go out into the field and break it. And then when you come back again, you'll know that that was wrong, but you'll be one iteration closer to what's right. And if you fall in love with your first version of whatever it is, you know, a waiting staff or fishing or boots for mountain climbing, you will produce yesterday's idea.
0: Yep. The best entrepreneurs I've run across are completely willing to throw out everything they've done, everything they thought was right, because they're attached to the problem and not the solution. That's super helpful.
1: And that's why I think it is helpful to have some sort of mantras that you build into your company's process, where you stop and you force yourself to take those other perspectives before falling in love. Or you really do set up real experiments, so that you're iterating onto something, and you really do crowdsource from outside. Because the other thing we do is we get into an echo chamber, especially young companies. You know, you've, who do you start companies with? Your best friends. Yeah, well, you already know every fucking idea that you ever had with those people, right? And then who do you hire? Right, your friends. friends. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's like, "Man, isn't this amazing? We're so aligned." Yeah. <laughs> Amazing, you started that way. Yeah,
0: exactly. So uh, people can read more about this, obviously, in the book, uh, "The Imperfectionist Strategic Mindsets for Uncertain Times." I, I do want to touch also on the, the previous book, which I'm also really uh, excited about, which is "Bulletproof Problem Solving," just at a really high level. Uh, what what can people expect from that book as well?
1: Yeah, so it's just, uh, they're really siblings, sisters or brother and sister. The Bulletproof Problem Solving is a book about structured problem solving. So it provides a very clear seven-step approach to taking apart any problem. And think of it as a tools book. And there's 50 examples in the book that are real-life examples from solving problems, from quite personal problems like, where should I live or what job should I do, to massive problems like, how would you save wild Pacific salmon? if you were given 200 million in 15 years, right? So that's a tools book. The way it's a sister to the imperfectionist is is the imperfectionist says, okay, now do all that when everything's changing every second, right? And that requires you to be on your toes. And the six mindsets we talk about in the second book are really about what's your orientation toward problem solving, not just the tools.
0: Awesome. We're going to put links to both in the show notes uh, so people can easily find them. And I just want to say thanks for taking time to chat and and joining the show. And and thanks for taking care of the companies in the world that are taking care of our planet and and our bodies and our our lives. So really cool to learn a little bit about what you're up to and all you've done and appreciate the time. Well, I love the time together. It was really great. Went very quickly. Thanks, Dave. Thanks a lot for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, or who you'd like to hear next on Give First. And please leave a rating and review, ideally a good one. And reach out anytime to podcasts at techstars.com or on Twitter, I'm at David Cohen. See you next time. Don't forget, Give First.